here she was trying to live the holy life and she wasn't doing very much in her practice. So the Buddha, through his psychic powers, he caused a woman, a beautiful woman, to appear in front of her and to age very rapidly so that she went from being young and beautiful to being old and decrepit until she could even see the the bones and skeleton of this woman. And then she had the insight into impermanence. And of course, from then on, the Buddha knew how to exhort her until her mind was quite ripe, and he gave her the teaching of the Four Noble Truths so that she was able to realize stream entry. And then, as usual with all the disciples in those days, before long she became Nara. (laughs) and um, we can do this too one thing that we can always contemplate is that as soon as we have a realization of impermanence then that's like having the Buddha sit in front of us that's what Ajahn Chah used to say if you have insight into impermanence then it's as if the Buddha is sitting in front of you because the Buddha did say Those who see the Dhamma see me. So when you are sitting and meditating and you have the vision of the arising and vanishing of the object of meditation, then you can rejoice because you are seeing the Dhamma. And when you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. And you'll you'll also recall that when the Buddha passed away into Parinibbana, then he did not name any monk or any disciple to be the leader of the Sangha. No one could take his place. The Dhamma would be what would be revered. The Dhamma would be all that was needed. The triple jewels would be where people would take their refuge, not in any person but in the Dhamma itself. So in the Buddha, as the enlightened one, and also as our own potentiality for enlightenment, in the Dhamma as the truth of the way things are, as the absolute essence of our true nature, the perfection of all life. And the Sangha, the community of practitioners, the Arahants of those days, eminent disciples of the Buddha, realizing this impermanence, realizing the Dhamma, realizing Dukkha, realizing the origin of Dukkha, the cessation of Dukkha, and the path leading therein, and realizing Anatta. There is no self that we can take refuge in. But the actual process of attaining those realizations or of fulfilling them or of manifesting them in our body and mind is a gradual training. So even though we wear the robe, we're still carrying all our stuff. Worrying about how we look. It wouldn't do much good anyway. (laughs) As you get older, you get these age spots. And... I don't know if any of you experience this, and sometimes I'm washing my hands and you rub somewhere, 
you think it's a piece of dirt, and then you realize, <laughs> no, this isn't coming out. And what you traditionally in the nunnery, we don't have mirrors except when we shave our heads. So you don't stand there and kind of... <laughs> but then when you do, <laughs> I, all I could see were the age spots. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, God, I still have all this vanity. It takes time to rub it out, to let it go, to free ourselves from these conditioned habits, these attachments. We're so attached to the body. Many times I thought to myself, oh, what if I lose my mind? But maybe the karma is that I will. So one has to let go even that. I used to think the worst thing that could happen would be if I wouldn't be able to meditate. What if I got Alzheimer's and I knew that I had it? Because I have many, many friends who are quite elderly, and some of them are beginning to have dementia. So then that would be a huge letting go. We don't know what our karma is doing. And so it makes our doing of this practice more and more urgent. And then right in the middle of the retreat, someone close to us has a heart attack. So it's just very shocking when it touches here. Going back to this training in the robe, so we carry all this stuff, and we do hours and hours of practice, even if we're cleaning up the monastery, sweeping the floor and, and washing our bowl, and all the rules are geared in such a way as to bring you into a state of mindfulness and clear comprehension in the moment of what you're doing. So you have to hold the bowl a certain way, and you you mustn't do this to it and that to it. There's many rules just around one of our requisites. And then the robe. We have these robes that become like our skin. We have to be very mindful around. And all these things which to a beginner or to an outsider might seem very pointless and trivial, have a a tremendous meaning and a purpose. They constantly bring us back to the present moment and to our relationship to the present moment, to our body, to how we use the body. Like many of the rules are really about how the lay people perceive us, how we walk. You know, we're not supposed to walk around like this. <laughs> we have to look very composed. Why is that? So that we can arouse faith. We can arouse faith in the lay people. Just like when the Buddha's disciples were walking on alms around in the, in the villages, and people used to see them, they would become inspired by their demeanor. They looked very composed. And probably all of them were already very highly evolved. But we're really making that effort. And that intention, year after year after year, it slowly, slowly grinds down those defilements of the mind. Benabalapamana will tell you (laughs) what it's like to keep that roll tucked under his arm. Especially when you bow and it keeps flipping down. <laughs> and then after 15, 20 years, it's still flipping down. 
I have this habit of dropping my sitting cloth. And I went on a pilgrimage to India, and I visited some of my teachers, some that I hadn't seen since I entered the monastery. It was so much joy, it was terrific, to be together and for, for them to see me like this. And of course, my teacher in Nepal was the first Buddhist monk who was a teacher for me. He has a temple in Kathmandu with about 30 samaneras, young monks, from the age of 6 to 18. Then they can graduate, and at the age of 21 they can become bhikkhus. They're, they're so beautiful. And there were three little nuns, too, about 14, 15. And we were all eating in the dining hall, and I was sitting with the samaneras, and the nuns were serving us. <laughs> and it was just lovely to see, because they keep the form quite well, and naturally I felt like I'm an ambassador for a Western monastic, so I'm going to be very, very mindful. And I finished eating, folded up my sitting cloth, put it over my shoulders, I usually do, and put my bowl in my arms carefully, because you must treat the bowl as if it was the head of the Buddha. It's that precious. You must never drop your bowl. I carry my bowl, a certain way to hold it, and I bat three times to the sayadaw, and then I got up, and I was walking very mindfully out, and all of a sudden the sayadaw says, fell down. <laughs> had slipped down. And there it was on the floor. And it took all of my mindfulness not to drop my bowl and to very carefully pick it up with composure <laughs> and continue to walk out, feeling like I have this embarrassing habit that is always very public. So I decided to train myself not to do this. And I changed the color of my sitting cloth to a different brown. It's very hard when it's the same brown. One has the intention, and then you can be clumsy, you can be forgetful, not to make an excuse, but just not to be so serious, like we have to be perfect. We're just the way we are, and it's okay. We can't be perfect. We're human beings. And maybe we're going to get worse. I mean... <laughs> Just to really take it as a training. Everything, every situation is there to teach us. The humility that comes from humiliation can be very wholesome. Because when we have pride, we can't really do very well on this path. How can we see the Buddha? How can we see impermanence if we're walking around full of ourselves? If you take refuge in a self, then this is just a costume. It's a mask. You're not really practicing. You're not using the holy life as the Buddha meant it to be used. Are they kind? Are they, are they nice? Are they easy to be with? Are they condescending and full of themselves? But what is it that really counts? What are they going to be like when they get sick? 
or when they have to face loss. These are the things that really show what kind of a human being we are. Not that we're an ajahn, or a doctor, an engineer, or a janitor, or a bus driver, or a nurse. I remember whenever I came back from the monastery to visit my father, I used to bow to him. He, he didn't want me to. He nursed my mother for 20 years at home in his old age. She got Alzheimer's when she was very young, and he was 65 when she got sick, and he nursed her till he was, he was 84 when she died. She died at home in my arms with him there. His practice of nursing her was such a teaching to me. It was the greatest teaching. He was so humble. He's such a purity of love and devotion. He totally surrendered his life to look after this person that he loved with all his heart. And to me, he was like my mother's superior, my father's superior. So whenever I used to come back to spend time with them, I would bow and pay my respect. Actually, this is what children do in Asia. But that was my practice to my father, being able to show my love. Everything that happens in the monastery is a teaching. So there are lots of disappointments. There are lots of things like that that I maybe wouldn't feel comfortable sharing, especially when I was a young nun. I remember Achan Sumedho used to go around in the monastery in Thailand just out of curiosity, and he used to ask the monks, if your mother was drowning in the river, what would you do? Because the monks have this rule where they're not allowed to touch women. And most of them would say, I would throw her my robe. And he was aghast. Your mother is drowning, you want to throw her your robe. <laughs> so the training is about wisdom. It's not just like you become a robot. If you just follow rules, that's not liberation. We have to be wise. Remember wisdom and faith for the drawed animals? They draw the chariot forward. The path begins with wisdom, and it ends with wisdom. Some of you might think that if you breathe in and out and watch your breath, for 385,000 times you'll be enlightened, or something like that. A certain number of breaths, and that's it. But it's not like that. For some people, they're just taking care of their wife for 19 or 20 years, and totally giving themselves with loving kindness, compassion, joy in their hearts, and developing equanimity around a very difficult situation, and then dying with an incredible radiance. My father did meditate for the last ten years of his life. We don't know who's really doing it. So we can't be fooled by appearances, and we must be wise and discerning about this practice and about the way we use this practice 
And then some of us become retreat addicts. And we go from 10-day retreat to 10-day retreat, and then we feel very good about ourselves. And people say, I've done 25 retreats. Then when you talk to the person, you realize the person who's, this is their first retreat, may have a deeper concentration than the, you know, you can't use these things as props to hold up your ego. It doesn't work like that. And if that's what we're doing, we're not using the practice in a very skillful way. We really, this, this practice is about dying before we die. And that means we have to give up this attachment to a self, to the self, to somebody who's becoming something, someone who's getting enlightened. That's counterproductive. That doesn't work. There's a real deep letting go there that has to take place. And the Buddha was so wise because he he says that we should contemplate death continuously. Now you might wonder, well, why should I contemplate death? Well, think of it. Because of our attachment. Our attachment to the kundas. Our attachment to forms, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness itself. Not to mention the body, the vanity of youth and health, to life. We are deeply invested in all of this. And when somebody that we love dies, we're going to suffer. We're going to grieve. We're going to feel very out of our element. How to deal with this? Because we've built all our hopes and dreams, our, our refuge, it's all hanging on a very fragile structure that has no solid basis. Therefore, whatever we do in our lives, whatever kind of practice we can follow using the the Buddha's teaching, applying it in our daily life and developing our insight, our ability to be wise, living skillfully, living virtuously, living mindfully. The charioteer is mindfulness that guides us on the path with a spirit of love and devotion to the goodness in life, cultivating goodness, cultivating loving-kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity, then it doesn't matter. You could be a carpenter, you know, like Jesus, and look what he was able to accomplish. You don't have to come from a princely family to follow in the Buddha's footsteps. I took on the road and I come from a refugee family. These are the obstacles. The obstacles are the, the ego clinging and the belief that, that sights, sounds, smells, tastes, entertainments, excitements, intellectual pursuits of the world will satisfy us and make us happy. Constantly looking for happiness out there 
coming back to finding the happiness within us here in whatever life deals us, whatever our karma is, whatever our karmic predicament is, to use the disappointments of life as a teaching, just to welcome life the way it comes. So that's how we learn to let go the ego and to go for refuge to that which can really give us refuge. Those who rightly love wisdom contemplate death all the time. And death is the least terrible thing in the world for them. Those who rightly love wisdom. When Sariputta, who was one of the great devotees of the Buddha, passed away, Ananda was very upset. He was really, really upset. And he went to the Buddha and I'd like to read this to you. I think this is a wonderful passage. How is this, Ananda? When Sariputta passed away, did he take from you your portion of virtue? Or your portion of concentration? Or your portion of wisdom? Or your portion of deliverance? Or your portion of the knowledge and vision of deliverance? Not so, Lord. When the Venerable Sariputta passed away, he did not take my portion of virtue, of concentration, of wisdom, of deliverance, or of the knowledge and vision of deliverance. But, Lord, the Venerable Sariputta has been to me a mentor, a teacher, an instructor, one who rouses, inspires, and gladdens, untiring in preaching the Dhamma a helper of his fellow monks. And we remember how vitalizing, enjoyable, and helpful his Dhamma instruction was. Have I not taught you already, Ananda, that it is the nature of all things near and dear to us that we must suffer separation from them and be severed from them? Of that which is born, come into being put together, and so is subject to dissolution, how should it be said that it should not depart? That indeed is not possible. It is ananda as though from a mighty hardwood tree a large branch should break off. So has Sariputta now passed away from this great and sound community of bhikkhus. Indeed, Ananda, of that which is born, come into being, put together, and so is subject to dissolution, how should it be said that it should not depart? That is not possible. Therefore, Ananda, be an island unto yourself, a refuge unto yourself, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge.